All I have is Christ. All I have is Christ. The end of days is drawing near. As we're talking about children, parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, you must be wondering, what is this world going to be like 10, 15, 20 years from now? What type of world are we leaving for our children, our grandchildren? You must be wondering that. I wonder that. As the end draws near, let me give you a glimpse into the future here according to Revelation. In that day, there will be one world order. In that day, there will be one world economy. In that day, there will be one world religion. In that day, there will be one world ruler, the Antichrist. Perhaps you could kind of see the times moving to, in this direction. A godless culture will rule the world. There'd be less and less reference to God, His truth, the exclusiveness to Christ. That'd be followed by one great period of tribulation, three and a half years of hell on earth, the Bible describes. Global wars, global famine, perhaps global diseases, global persecution of professing believers, global disaster where a third of the vegetation will be burned up, a third of the sea creatures will die, a third of the drinking water will be polluted. Large percentage of the population will perish in that day. Where's the hope? And we don't know when that day is going to come, but we know this for sure. We're one day closer, and it sure feels like it's getting closer. Here's the hope. Jesus promised to come back. This is where the hope is at. This is as we're professing believers. Our hope is in Christ. This is where we can all sing with conviction and say, All I have is Christ. It's going to be obvious where all the other things are not going to matter. Everything that's tied into this world is not going to matter. All I have is Christ. John 14, 3. Thank you, Deborah, for reading. This is Jesus' personal promise to the church, to the disciples, that he will come back and gather his people and take them home to be with him. This is a promise from the Lord given in the upper room before he would be arrested, before he would be tried, before he would go to the cross and ultimately die. Jesus is returning. Jesus is returning. So we're going to be at 1 Corinthians 15. If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Corinthians 15. If you have your phones, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I'll give you a little bit of context. So as we read 1 Corinthians 15, the final portion, we'll have a better, fuller idea of what it's talking about. Chapter 15 is the most glorious, most detailed chapter on the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of believers, and the return of Christ, resurrection day itself. This is what we're going to focus in on. We're going to focus in on what resurrection day is going to be like when Christ returns for his church. This is going to be a glorious section of, of 1 Corinthians 15. This will keep you going. This will add that hope and encourage that hope that you have in you. This is the most encouraging section of Scripture. First, chapter 15 details a gospel promise of resurrection life. So let's read 1 Corinthians 15. Let's rise 
as we read the scriptures together, we'll be reading chapter uh, 15, verse 50 through 58. We always turn to God's word for answers and for truth. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and the mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, comma, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to preach your word. I pray your spirit will allow me to preach your word faithfully. I pray, Lord, that you would grow our hope in your son, Jesus Christ, and your son will be glorified through this sermon. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Resurrection Day, this is what we're talking about today. This is what we're preaching on. This is what this section is about. And to give you a little bit of help in kind of following along with the sermon, I'm going to give you the four points that we're going to cover today, some with more depth than others. But Resurrection Day, we're going to learn about the must-have, must-have of Resurrection Day. Number two, we're going to learn about the mystery of Resurrection Day, the mystery of Resurrection Day. Number three, we're going to learn about the message of Resurrection Day. Number four, we're going to learn about the motivation of Resurrection Day. All right, so let's get to point number one. The must-have, fill in the blank, must-have. I made that into one word. The must-have of Resurrection Day. Verse 50 says this, Now I see this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Flesh and blood, just talk about our mortal sinful bodies that we have. When you look in the mirror, that is flesh and blood. And the Bible says right here clearly that it is impossible. It cannot receive. It cannot inherit. Our bodies are not written in the will of God to receive heaven. It's not compatible with heaven. Our sinful flesh cannot coexist with our holy God. Exodus 33.20 talks about how God describes no man can see God and live. Not one man. Isaiah 6.5, the prophet, describes his encounter with the holy God. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinner, for I have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I am going to disintegrate in the presence of God. So it's impossible for our current condition to, receive, to be in the presence of the, our holy God. And it goes on to say, nor, the, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. 
Our bodies are not compatible for eternity. Our bodies are dying. It's obvious, right? When we look in the mirror, when we just feel ourselves waking up, getting out of bed, things are hurting, things are falling apart, things are not as sharp and as quick as they used to be. All right? This is very obvious to all of us. And if we go into eternity, we'll be like fish out of water. We're not built for eternity right now. All right? We understand this. Our bodies are bound or trapped by time and space. This is the dimension that we're living in. We're in this time and space box. And our bodies are meant to dwell in this space. Verse 53 says this, though, For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. So resurrection day must happen for Christians to be able to live with God, to live with Christ in heaven. This is a must-have. This has to happen. And the next point, we're going to talk about how is this all going to happen. Point number two, the mystery of Resurrection Day. Fill in the blank, mystery of Resurrection Day. Paul gives, make sure the Corinthians are listening. Verse 15, he goes, behold, this is like, listen up, pay attention, don't zone out now, follow with me now, track with me. Paul's making sure that the Corinthians are tracking. I tell you a mystery. This mystery. Many divine truths have been withheld from us. There's a lot of mysteries that we don't quite understand. And Resurrection Day was unknown. And Paul is giving mystery. We're talking about mystery. This is not like some kind of a riddle or puzzle. Some truths have been withheld from us, and God is basically giving us a glimpse into heaven. God is using Paul to open up the windows of heaven so we get a sneak peek into heaven. These are heavenly truths that Paul is giving to us. And he's about to reveal some things about the resurrection day. He says, Behold, I tell you, mister, we will not all sleep. What does that mean? We, talking about Christians, we, inclusive, he adds himself in this group. We will not all sleep. Not every single Christian is going to sleep. What does that mean? Sleep is simply a euphemism in the New Testament for death. It does not talk about literal sleep, death. This is talking about death. Paul is telling the Corinthians that not all Christians are going to die. Not all Christians are going to die. What happens to Christians when they do die? Have you thought about that? If you were to die as a believer, what happens to you? Some people believe that in a concept called soul sleep, where you're actually sleeping until the return of Christ. That's, that's not right. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says this. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, We're absent from the body at home with the Lord. Although we'll be away from our bodies, our inner being, our spirits, our souls will be with Christ. This is what this is talking about. But it also goes on to say, although not everyone's going to die, we will all be changed, transformed, completely changed. We'll have beautiful, glorified bodies, resurrected bodies to dwell in heaven to be able to be in the presence of Christ, our holy God, and thrive and not to be incompatible with eternity. 
This is what we have to look forward to. The last uh, sermon that we preached out of 1 Corinthians 15, we, t- we detailed what type of spiritual bodies but we have. But we'll be built to be in the presence of God. So what is resurrection day going to be like? We're going to be changed. And Paul says not all of us are going to die. The meaning, Christians will be alive when Christ returns. What is that day going to be like? Well, let's keep reading here. Verse 52, follow with me. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in a moment, this word moment is atomos. Atomos, what does that sound like? This is where we get our word for atom. Adam, what's an atom? Adam is the smallest unit of matter. So in other words, how long is it going to take for this transformation to take place? In a moment. Meaning in a unit of time that you cannot break down even smaller. That is it. This is the smallest unit of time. And he gives us an illustration. In the twinkling of an eye. What is that? That's the time it takes for the eye to to twitch. The time it takes to cast a glance. In essence, Christians, we're going to be at brand new bodies instantly. Instantly. This is not going to be a gradual process. When Christ comes, this is going to be a dramatic, instant moment. And as we read through verse 52, at the last trumpet... What does the last trumpet signify? The last trumpet means the end of the church age. End of the church era. When Christ comes back for his church, it says this, for the trumpet will sound. And what does the trumpet mean in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, if you want to read a little deeper into it, Exodus nineteen sixteen, the trumpets of God were sounding to announce the presence of God on Mount Sinai. So when the trumpet sounds, in essence, Christ is announcing that he, God himself, is coming to get his people. It's a significant moment. And, and this is, as Paul details to us the, about the resurrection, he gives us more details in 1 Thessalonians. So turn about five books to your right here. 1 Thessalonians, five or six verse, uh, books to your right. Chapter 4, verse 13. He gives us way more details in this uh, uh, chapter as well out of Thessalonians. There's the issue that was arising in the Thessalonian church. What would happen to Christians who, who would die before the return? Are they out of luck? Are they, do they have no hope? So that Paul was addressing a different issue. In Corinth, Paul was addressing an issue that said that there is no resurrection. But in Thessalonica, the Thessalonians believed that there was a resurrection, but there was a concern. What happens to those who were to die before the return of Christ. Are they going to be part of the resurrection? But let's just take this verse by verse here. Verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, Christians. We need to be informed of the end times, of truth. Brethren, about those who are asleep. There's that word again. Those who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Meaning, let's not be like the non-believers who believe that death is it and that's it. No hope. Christians, we have hope. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, his death, it's completely tied into Jesus' death and resurrection, our hope, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So meaning when Jesus Christ returns to gather up the church, he's bringing those, the dead saints with him. All right? 
He's bringing dead saints who have, who have passed on into eternity with Him in this moment. Verse 15, For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, by the authority of God, that we who are alive remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Meaning there's an order of resurrection, even for Christians. Verse 16, let's detail these next two verses out here. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. With a shout, for Christ himself is coming from heaven. The doors of heaven are opened up. Jesus is coming to earth to receive to himself the church. And there's going to be a shout. I can't help but think about the time when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Remember what he said, Lazarus, come forth with a shout. And then what happens next? With the, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, there it is again, heralding, announcing, here's the presence of God, the trumpet of God. This is not going to be a covert operation. This is going to be a very dramatic obvious moment, okay, in the life of this world. Jesus is coming down with a shout. The archangels, there's a cry from the archangels and the trumpet sounding. And then guess what happens? And the dead in Christ will rise first. So those saints who have died already will receive their resurrected bodies first. That's why he's bringing them with them. And then their bodies will be resurrected, glorified bodies, and they'll be united to their souls and spirits. And they'll have actual, physical, spiritual, glorified bodies built for eternity. So any, any brothers or sisters that you know who have passed on, mothers, fathers, friends, mentors, any heroes from church history who have gone on, they'll receive their bodies first. Verse 17. Then we, if we happen to be alive, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. We'll be called up, we'll be raptured up to be with the Lord and with the church. Imagine that day. With them in the clouds to meet the Lord in there. We'll be, we'll be with the Lord. First John 3, 26 says this, When he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. When we see Christ for the first time, that transformation takes place within us. In a twinkling, in a moment, right? Twinkling of an eye. That happens. The changes took place for us if we're alive at that time. And here's the promise that God has made. So we shall always be with the Lord. Imagine that day. We'll always be with Christ forever and ever. This is where John 14.3, where Deborah read, that promise will be fulfilled in that day. Verse 18 says this, Therefore comfort one another with these words. This past week, as I was thinking about this section, I couldn't shake a thought that came into my mind. As I was preparing for Resurrection Day, the sermon on Resurrection Day, I, I couldn't help but think about children and who died young. Babies, perhaps who died in miscarriage. We support a wonderful ministry called Options, who gives 
young mothers or mothers uh, an option to keep their babies for unplanned pregnancies. I started up thinking about these. I couldn't shake this thought, so I, 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 a, a book came to mind, and um, this book is called Safe in the Arms of God, written by Pastor John MacArthur. So I started reading this book. I'm going to read you what he thinks about what happens to babies and young children who die. He tells a story. What about a two-year-old baby crushed at the bottom of the World Trade Center? The question was fired at me by Larry King. I'd been invited to participate as a panel member of the Larry King live television program one Saturday evening. The program was taped in, in the aftermath of September 11, 2001 attacks on the United States. Even though we had been discussing issues of life and death, grief and hope, as part of this program, Larry's questions seemed to come out of nowhere. Instant heaven. I immediately replied. Larry fired back a second question. He wasn't a sinner? I again answered, instant heaven. Larry's compelling question revealed a nagging, troubling issue in the human heart. My response to Larry King was not an out-of-the-blue response to an out-of-the-blue question. It was a statement of my true conviction based upon a thorough and careful study of Scripture through the years. If you'd like to read this, see me after service, I'll be more than happy to let you read it and have it. But some of the theological reasons why Pastor John MacArthur thinks, believes that children who have died will be in, in the presence of the Lord are some of these that he cites Matthew nineteen fourteen. Let the children come to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. He cites the Old Testament out of Ezekiel sixteen twenty one, where Ezekiel sixteen twenty one, where children who have been sacrificed to the pagan god of Molech, what they would do in Canaanite religion was to sacrifice their own children, babies, to a red hot glowing idol called Moloch, and they would place their sons and daughters on this pagan god called Moloch, thinking that it was pleasing to this false god. And God says this, he calls these children sacrifice, my children, he claims them. Jeremiah 19.4, he calls these children innocent. You sacrifice the blood of innocence. Jonah 4.11 he, he cites as, I, as uh, God spoke to uh, Jonah, he says, I have 120,000 in Nineveh who cannot discern from their right, from their left. Meaning they don't have the ability to discern right, wrong. They don't have the ability to understand and comprehend sin, salvation, forgiveness. We understand this, particularly children who are unborn, they don't understand this. Pastor MacArthur even goes on to add on to even adults who do not have the ability to comprehend these things. God considers them innocent in his mercy. And I don't have time to cover all the things that he talked about, but I was encouraged. Hopefully this encourages you. And, and I know many of us know people who've gone through miscarriages. Perhaps some of us have been through 
abortions. Perhaps some of us have lost children who are young. God is a merciful God. Instant heaven, Pastor MacArthur says. These two will be resurrected on resurrection day. They too will have their glorified bodies. They won't be babies, but they'll be mature, glorified bodies to worship God and to serve with one another. You will be reunited with your child someday if you're in Christ. Let's go to point number three. The message of the resurrection day, fill in the blank, message. Verse 54 says this, back to Corinthians 15. Verse 54 says, But when this perishable will put, have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, meaning when resurrection day happens, when we get our new bodies, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Paul quotes Isaiah 25, 8 and Hosea 13, 4 to proclaim victory. That on resurrection day, victory will be proclaimed. On resurrection day, death will no longer be a threat to Christians. Right now, death is a nuisance. Death is a reality for us all. Getting sick, getting dying, uh, dying, getting in an accident, getting old. All these things are realities for us. It causes us uh, pain. We miss our uh, loved ones who have passed on. It's definitely a reality for us. But in that day, there will be no more dying, no more death. Death has been vanquished. And verse 56 here says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So Paul gives us a theology behind this whole uh, proclamation of how victory is found on Resurrection Day, how death has been defeated. John Calvin does a really good job of explaining this, the reformer. Death has no other weapon except sin. Do you hear that? Death has no other weapon except sin with which to wound us. Since death comes from the wrath of God, but God is angry only with our sins, John Calvin writes. Do away with sin, then, and death will not be able to harm us anymore. Let me read that again. Do away with, the sin, do away with sin, then, and death will not be able to harm us anymore. It is the law of God that gives that sting its deadly power. Death becomes neutralized. Its power over, over Christians is over in that day. We don't have to worry about death anymore at that point. Death is defanged of its venomous bite. Just a snake now. There's no, there's no more threat to this. It's like a bee without its stinger. A lot of theologians describe that day as. Death is no longer a threat to the church. And, all, and really, the ultimate message of Resurrection Day is found in verse 57. Is this the message that we believe in? Is this the message that we love to talk about with everyone we get a chance to? Verse 57, but thanks be to God, gratitude to God who gives us the victory. How are we victorious? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory is not won on our own, as we know. Not one of us could defeat death and sin on our own. However, thanks be to God, Thanks be to God. Let's worship him in this. Let's let, allow our gratitude towards him grow because of his son, Jesus Christ, who is our champion. Jesus has overcome. This is the message of Resurrection Day. 
This is what we're going to be singing. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Jesus gives us victory. Jesus defeated sin. When he lived the perfect life, putting on human skin. And he fulfilled the requirements of the law. And Jesus Christ went to the cross as our substitute. He took the punishment that we need to bear. We're sinners. He is not. He went to the cross. And Jesus conquered death by resurrecting from the grave. This is why today is the Lord's Day. This is why we celebrate resurrection. Every Sunday, Jesus Christ, we recognize raised from the grave. So the message of Resurrection Day is that Jesus Christ is our champion. Jesus Christ is our victor. Jesus Christ is the one who has vanquished sin and death through the cross, through the gospel message. This is the message that Resurrection Day is, is all about. This is the message that we proclaim until he comes back and there's no more opportunity to evangelize. This is the message that we hold on to. This is the message that you share with your friend who's grieving the loss of their child. This is the message that you offer up in love to those who's lost a parent recently. This is the message that resurrection is all about. Resurrection day is all about. Now I got one more point. One more point. And just to frame this final point up, I just want to give a little context here. This final verse really gripped my heart, exhorted me, captured me. And, and you'll know what I mean. I have a massive concern for, for our people of this day and age, Christians and non-Christians. And it's going to sound like the coach coming out of me, but it's going to make sense. Our culture today, I believe, is producing and birthing a soft-mindedness, weak-mindedness, lack of toughness, lack of perseverance, lack of resilience. When things are tough, I'm out. That looks too hard. I don't want to try it. People are not going to like me, so I better keep my mouth shut and not speak the truth. I'm concerned because our culture is breeding a, a mindset of giving up our resolve. More entitled, we feel like we have more rights, more liberties. We, we say things such as, it's not fair. How come? You know, we, we, we use those things. Our culture teaches us. We, our culture teaches us to pursue comfort, security, our culture teaches us to avoid difficult situations, take the easier road, is considered wise. Our culture teaches us to be more self-absorbed, narcissistic perhaps, keep looking at ourselves, keep presenting ourselves in the greatest light. I'm concerned. Because this day and age that's about to hit us and approach us is going to require a different level of perseverance and resilience that we have not quite understood yet. 
I'm just talking to you as a pastor of this church. Our people need to be tough. We need to cultivate a spiritual toughness, a mindset that's set on Christ. And even in professional sports, we were trying to develop this. Even with big, strong, powerful, highly paid athletes, we needed to develop this. Our coach brought in an expert from the secular world. Her name is Angela Duckworth. And she kind of zeroed in on a concept called grit. G-R-I-T, grit. Angela Duckworth is a professor of psychology at Penn University, a brilliant woman. And she captured the room. She did a wonderful job of explaining to us what grit is. She said grit is the number one predictor of success. Not talent, but grit. And she basically challenged the whole room. I mean, you had some gritty people, coaches and players and staff there thinking, man, am I gritty? And she defined grit as this. Perseverance and passion, the two Ps. Perseverance and passion for long-term meaningful goals. People who are gritty, in other words, persevere and are passionate towards pursuing long-term meaningful goals. You're willing to stick it in there and not just go through the motions, but go through it with all your heart and all your might because you believe. Passion and perseverance and passion for long-term meaningful goals. And then the question was brought up to her. You had my, she had my attention and she had everyone else's attention. I want some of this grit. I want to be gritty. The question was asked, well, how do we develop more grit? And her humble, honest answer was this. I don't know. All right? She goes, my job is just to understand what grit is. I don't know how to develop it. Well, Paul knew how to develop spiritual grit in his Corinthians and in us today. The final verse is going to give us the foundation of what it means to be a spiritually gritty person. And Paul understood to have spiritual grit, one needs to have proper motivation. So the final point is the motivation of Resurrection Day. Motivation of Resurrection Day. Verse 58, like any good preacher or any good writer, there's a response to all the the facts that are going to happen. Indicative, 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 indicative. Promise, 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 promise. Blessing, 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 blessing. That's what chapter 15 is about. Blessing, blessing, blessing. Indicative, indicative, indicative. Resurrection, resurrection, hope. Resurrection, resurrection, hope. And then he turns it on one verse and puts all that and gets all the juice. Sorry, I get too fired up sometimes. Um, He says, he simply uses the word, therefore. That one word ties up all the promises of chapter 15. That one word ropes in the entire chapter and puts them in a bag for us to keep with us. Therefore, with all the force of chapter 15, the Mount Everest of of Corinthians, perhaps one of the Mount Everest peaks of the entire Bible, Paul comes with the full power and weight of chapter 15 and says, therefore, what is it therefore? Because Christ resurrected from the grave. Because our glory, we will receive glorified bodies someday. This is a promise. 
Do you believe this? Because he's given us victory over death. Because he's coming back to receive us. Well, all those promises, therefore, what does he say to do? My beloved brethren. You got to be careful anytime Paul starts using affectionate terms like that. Because he's about to bring the hammer, what he's expecting from his beloved brethren, okay? My beloved brethren. It's a term of endearment. It's an affectionate appeal because he loves the Corinthian church. Although they're difficult, he loves them dearly. With all the relationship he has with the Corinthian church, he says, be now. Be what? Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Be. Instead of indicative, indicative, now he's an imperative. He's giving a command now. This is what you're called to be like Corinthian church. In the face of opposition, in the face of trials, in the face of the culture that hates you. Be is what he's saying. Do not be tossed to and fro because of the culture. Do not be wishy-washy for your affection for Christ and his church. Because it's not going to be popular to be steadfast in Christ. He's saying, be steadfast and immovable. Be anchored in what we believe in. Paul says, be like a massive oak tree, firmly rooted in the convictions of the Bible. On God's word. Be like a courageous soldier who will not leave his post. Because... My fellow soldiers are counting on me because I need to answer to the commander someday who enlisted me to hold this post. Be steadfast and immovable. Firm. In other words, he's saying, be gritty, Corinthians. Hang in there. Demonstrate spiritual grit that's not explainable by the world. Beyond just humanistic toughness or humanistic grit, we're talking about spiritual grit. This is what Paul is talking about. And he's talking about be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Stay the post, hang in the A gap, stay there, do not retreat, take on opposition, you're not alone, and be always abounding in the work of the Lord. What is the work of the Lord? How would you answer this right now? If you look to disciple your people, what would you say is the work of the Lord? Well, just so we're thinking the same thing, I'm going to tell you, and, and it's my job as the preacher. What did the Lord give us before he left? The great what? Say it, the great what? That's right, the Great Commission. Before he left, he gave the disciples the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Right? Making disciples. Are we abounding in the work of the Lord, in the great, of the Great Commission, in our personal lives? Are we abounding in the work of the Lord, of the Great Commission, corporately as a church family? Are we truly about discipleship? In September, like I mentioned at our, one of our meetings, that we will lay out built for discipleship. 
and we're going to lay out how we're going to do this at Evergreen. How this is going to happen. But can you look into your life right now and say, yeah, I am definitely abounding in the work of the Lord. And always abounding, what this means is continuously, nonstop. This is what you think about when you go to bed. This is what you think about when you wake up. This is what you think about when you're eating your cereal in the morning. This is what you think about in your jogs. This is what you're thinking about at work. This this is what you think about when you uh, think about being a parent someday, raising little ones. How am I going to disciple these little guys in this world? This is what you think about as a grandparent. This is what you think about as a co-worker. This is what you think about as a coach. How can I evangelize this player? How can I build my relationship? Eventually we could talk about Christ. This is what you think about when people come to you with hurts. In suffering, you offer up the hope of the gospel, the message of Resurrection Day. This is what it means to be always abounding. Instead of holding back, you got to let loose. This is not time to be conservative. This is championship time. This is the fourth quarter. This is where we got to finish. This is the time that you say, I am all in. This is not the time to say, back off and let me rest. We rest in eternity. This is what Paul is saying. This is what Paul is saying. And here's the motivation. Almost finished here. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, comma. What does it say? Knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Toil, that means your labor to the point of exhaustion. This is, I'm spent. This is, this is what I am about. And it's not in vain. And you know it's not in vain. It's not pointless. It is not purposeless. It's not profitless. It matters. Whether people notice or not, it matters. Because Why? Why? Knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The Lord knows. We don't know when the Lord is going to return exactly, but it's getting closer. We know that for sure. What a day that's going to be. Jesus is returning. Jesus is returning. Jesus is returning. And I believe Paul is exhorting the church to have a sense of urgency. I don't think this is just my own, kind of my own personality coming out here. This is Paul's exhorting the church to have a sense of urgency. This is the only way how to live. There's no other way. If you want to be effective, if you want to be, have a dominant presence, this is the only way to live in anything that you do. You know this. For whatever reason, we, some have, Soften the Christian life. You know if you want to be successful at work or sports or relationship, you've got to be all in. You understand this in other areas of our lives. Christianity is no different. Let me read, just read one more verse here. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Just turn to your left a few uh, pages here. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. This is what keeps me going. Chapter 4 has just been a foundational chapter for me just is a source of encouragement therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time what time 
But wait until the Lord comes. There it is again. Jesus is returning. But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then what's going to happen? He's going to evaluate every single thing, even your thought life, even the motivation for doing good things for the Lord. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. God knows everything, every sacrifice that you've given up, every moment of forgiveness for wrongs that people have done to you that nobody knows about, that you have to keep secret for some reason. God knows. God knows the hardship that you're going through right now. God knows. God knows how hard you've been going for him. He knows. He knows. And he will use everything that we do for his kingdom. And not only that, he will reward us for what we do for him. For him. Not for ourselves, for him. And what a day it will be when we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. What a day that will be. Well done, good and faithful servant. In that moment, nothing else is going to matter. Let's remain the course. We got to finish with a burst. This is not, I just got to get to the finish line. Let's finish with a burst. Let's finish through the line. Some of us, let's get fully committed. Some of us, let's get fully committed. It's all going to be worth it. And in conclusion, in that day, when that final trumpet sounds, and you hear, Church, come forth! Will you be called up? Or will you be left behind? Many, when the final trumpet sounds, will wake up and your spouse is going to be missing. Many will show up to school and your, some of your teachers and classmates are missing all of a sudden. Many will show up at church buildings to an empty church building with just a few people there. Many will feel all alone, like gulp. I remember that sermon from 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 58. I remember that sermon. Many will be left behind. Will you be called up or left behind? Have you fully surrendered to Christ? Have you fully committed to the message that Jesus Christ is Lord of all? Perhaps you lack fruit to give you confidence that you've done that. Repent, get on your knees, and pray. Ask God to give you a greater fire for him. Ask God to give you greater conviction for him. Ask God to make you that oak tree that's firmly rooted in biblical truth. Ask God to give you conviction for his word. Guess what? That day isn't here yet. Jesus has not come back yet. God is gracious. He's being patient. Jesus is calling you now. Jesus says, come to me. Jesus says, all who are weary and all who are heavy laden. Jesus says, come and I will give you rest. Jesus says, take my yoke and, my, and learn from me. Jesus says, I am humble and meek and gentle in heart. Jesus says, come 
and I will give you rest for your souls. What a day that's going to be when he comes. What a promise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your promise. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you when that final trumpet sounds, we will all be transformed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Thank you, Jesus, that in the, when the final trumpet sounds, we'll be lifted up and we'll be with you forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus, when that final trumpet sounds, that we'll be reunited with lost ones and who have died before us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we'll get to be in heaven with you and see your plan continue to unfold. Father, I pray, Lord, for more, more, more motivation for all of us to be faithful to you to the end. I pray that we will just desire to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, from your lips. Father, help us to be more faithful to you. Help us to be more motivated to be about you. And Father, I pray you call forward those who need to surrender their lives to you right now. That they will acknowledge that they are sinners and they need to be with you, Lord Jesus. That they would believe and acknowledge Jesus Christ, that you are God and you live the perfect life. And that you went to the cross to pay for our sins. They will acknowledge you as the risen Lord and commit to following you as their Lord and Savior all the days of their lives. And their passion of their life will be to be faithful to you to the end because you've been so faithful to us. Oh God, how can it be that you would love us so much? Thank you so much. I pray, Lord, these words that were preached out of 1 Corinthians 15 would just encourage us, Lord, to the very end and convict those who need to come to you today to salvation. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.